through an Old Testament book, and we chose uh, one, I think, as from the guiding of the Spirit of God, to help us in a time of trouble. So we're going to read chapter 3 now, which is the final word from the prophet. He's gone back and forth in a dialogue with God, and now he is giving his final prayer, his response to God in a time of trouble. Remember, he has seen how God has called up the Chaldeans, who is a ruthless and evil nation, to do great harm to them. <clears throat> and then we see that God has pronounced woes of judgment on them. The word alas means, you know, your day is coming. And then finally, Habakkuk responds in prayer. Starting at verse 1 in Habakkuk 3, hear the word of God. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, according to Shigonoth. Lord, I have heard the report about you, and I fear. O Lord, revive your works in the midst of the years. Again, actually, I apologize. I'm reading from the New American Standard. I couldn't find my other Bible, but that's why it's, the wording is a little bit different. We are in the New American Standard of mine, but it's similar to the English Standard. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. So he has begun this prayer, which can also be sort of translated hymn. It's sort of like a hymn where he is responding now to the word of God, to the vision that he has seen. So he's calling forth uh, a prayer now or a hymn, a response to God. Oh, Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. This key verse right here. In wrath, remember mercy. In Wrath, Remember Mercy, that's the title of my sermon this morning. God comes from Temen, from the Holy One, from Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight. His rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yes. The perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan under distress. The tent curtains of the land of Midian were trembling. Does the, did the Lord rage against the rivers? Or was your anger against the rivers? Or was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made bare. The rods of chastisement were sworn, Selah. You cleaved the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and quaked. The downpour of water swept by. The deep uttered forth its voice and lifted high its hands. Sun and moon stood in their places. They went out at the light of your arrows. At the radiance of your gleaming spear, in indignation, you marched through the earth. In anger, you trampled the nations. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you struck the head of the house of evil. To lay him open from the thigh to the neck, Selah. You pierced with his own spears the head of his throngs. They stormed in to scatter us. Their exaltation was like those who devour the oppressed in secret. You trampled on the sea with your horses, on the surge of many waters. Verse 16, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. 
Decay enters my bones, and in the place and in my place I tremble, because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for those people to arise us who will invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the field of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no fruit. Though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and makes me walk on my high places for the choir director on my, on my stringed instruments. So maybe we could turn that into a hymn, Rebecca. What do you think? That would be great. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, now as we turn to your word, I pray you'd make our minds receptive to that which you have spoken. Lord, help us to understand the days that we are in now in light of your word. Not in light of headlines, not in light of um, speculation, not in light of fear, Lord, but that we would know the days that we live in in light of your word. So guard us from error, Father. I pray that your church would be known not for the number of her words, but by the power of the Spirit in them. So, God, bring our hearts to conviction, to worship, to even bring a prayer and a hymn of praise to you. God, now help us understand and obey and believe in this passage and the whole light of your scriptures in Jesus' name. Amen. I often don't work very hard at finding an interesting story as an introduction to my sermons. You may notice that. I don't really do that. I tend to dive in, and hopefully you're running with me. But this week, one fell onto my paper. Uh, you may or may not have read about 90-year-old Nancy Russell, who this past week, she chose doctor-assisted suicide over the possibility of another lockdown. She lives in Toronto. She avoided that outcome by about three or four or five days because tonight at midnight, her region will enter another full lockdown starting at midnight tonight. We're living in sad days. It seems like the only death the only death that the Ontario health authorities are not comfortable with are the ones that they can't control themselves. Euthanasia and abortion is not only legal, but it is paid for by the health authorities. So we need to move into this new season of health crisis, keeping in mind that these are the people who are declaring a, a state of emergency ostensibly for the preservation of life. I don't say that cynically. I don't say that to bring you to deep skepticism. Of course, our healthcare systems has helped a lot of you and myself as well in times of crisis. It's not to dismiss the good that has happened. But it is to recognize and open our eyes to ask the question, in how many homes is this going on mentally and spiritually? The church and the home, your home, my home, and our church must be a place of refuge for those 
who are struggling, for those who need the breath of fresh air of hospitality and fellowship. Again, if it makes you more frustrated to draw skepticism or criticism toward our civil authorities, if that brings you more frustration than the truth of this story, then you need to check whether your minds are renewed in the word of God or whether or not you're operating on the basis of blind faith. This is a picture of my grandmother. This was taken in 2016. She died two years later. She was 92 in this photo. Nancy Russell was 90 years old. And she's gone because she couldn't face another period of loneliness. Now, I say this to set the stage because sometimes when we read the scriptures, we're, we're, we don't relate to enemies invading us. We don't relate to the evils of kidnapping and overrunning governments. But we do live in evil days. We live in twisted and wayward times. And like Habakkuk, we can cry out, how long, God, is this going to go on? How long will you tolerate this evil? What this book tells us is that God has not lost the plot on good and evil. He has not forgotten the difference between good and evil. And again, I don't say this to criticize anyone who would be doing their best and, and holding up the healthcare. We have a lot of nurses, doctors in our the reach of our ministry. It's not to criticize you as a Christian. It's to say that the worldview that has invaded these systems is not consistent. It's not life-giving. And as Christians, we need to speak the truth into every area of life, whether it be education, whether it be finance, whether it be healthcare. We need to say, this is what the word of God says. And we might despair. Maybe you're involved in one of those areas of ministry and, and life in the world, and you're in despair. You don't feel like there's anything you can do. You don't feel like there's anything that you can make a difference as a Christian. Well, if you're alive and breathing, then there's something that God has for you to do. And there is a way that he is using you to advance his kingdom. So don't lose heart. Even though we might cry out with Habakkuk, how long will this go on? How long will they reject you and do violence on the earth? God has not lost the plot. The last passage we preached on ended with God and his throne. He's not been moved. He's not been deposed. He's not been thrown off. He is the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. And through Christ, he reigns on the earth. And so like Habakkuk, we might be right to cry out against sin. We might be right to cry out against sin, both in the church and in the wider community. It's everywhere. But the human aspect of this book is that God's people learn to navigate God's timing when it doesn't feel like it's right. When it doesn't feel like he's doing enough, when it doesn't feel like he's working fast enough or strong enough or boldly enough. With Habakkuk, we trust in the vision. We trust in the word of God. We believe that God has not lost the plot. We learn to trust and to wait on God for him to deal with it. That doesn't mean Christians go hide in a basement somewhere. Far from it. We are active. We live in the world wherever you're called. You put your hand to the grindstone and you do your best. You work faithfully to God. But by the same time, we don't lose heart that it's not moving quickly enough or we don't see the progress that we want. We must continue on understanding the word of God and obeying it. So we look at Habakkuk's hymn here. Number one, he recalls God's faithfulness to his own people. That's critical in navigating dark times. 
in navigating days of judgment. In wrath, remember mercy. Remember, that's a looking back on God's mercy, his faithfulness to his own people. The second thing we see is enduring by faith, endurance, Christian endurance, on the basis of the remembrance of his works. And then finally, we see living to the praise and glory of God in the midst of judgment or trial. That's sort of the threefold, um, the threefold outline of this passage. So the first thing we have to see is that the book ends in a prayer or a hymn. The very first verse in chapter 3 tells us that. It's a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. It's a book of prayer. It's a, it's a response of prayer. So it tells us very clearly that once Habakkuk receives the vision, his first act, his first response is to pray. That ought to be the posture of the Christian church. When you hear from the living God, when you see his work in the world, when you understand his will for mankind, when you hear from the Lord, we must respond in prayer. Some of us hear the word of God and we want to preach a sermon first. Guilty, right? Or we want to go convince somebody else or we want to go rail about it. We want to go, you know, shout it from the rooftops. And there's a time for those things. But God's people begin with prayer. God's people begin in a response, in a right posture before God. We write ourselves before the Lord before we do anything else. And it's a prayer to revive the works of old. It's a prayer to God to revive what he's done. You know, I've been in a lot of prayer meetings where we talk about God, do a revival like you did in the northeast of the United States, the New England revival or God, do a revival like you did in the 19th century in England. Or do a revival like you did in 1960 in California. And those are things where God may have brought a renewal to call to faith. But what the prophet is praying is to revive the work of salvation. Revive the basis upon which you saved us. And he recalls in, in metaphorical language or illustrative language, the works that God did, he mentions Noah's Ark, not explicitly. He mentions the battle of Joshua. He mentions the exodus from Egypt. He mentions all these times where God's people were saved in history, in real time. And it's on the basis of what really happened that the prophet cries out for renewal of these works. It's just like the book of James says that if you hear the word of God and you go away and you ignore it, you're like a man who looks in the mirror and forgets what he looks like. I'm sure that maybe maybe you haven't looked at a mirror this morning. Most of you look like you have. But whether you did or not, I'm sure you could imagine the vision of your own face. It's hard to forget. But when we hear God's word and we respond with nothing, we are like a man who forgets. And so may God bring us to prayer, to prayerfulness, not just attending a prayer meeting, but a prayerful life. Pray with your children. Pray with your wife. Seek God together in light of what he has said. In wrath, remember mercy. That's the heading of his prayer. It's so powerful. It's not for nothing that he prays that because what he recognizes is that as he recalls the work and the salvation of God, he understands that there is wrath associated with it. There is wrath associated with it. His prayer rolls out the memory of God's great work of salvation 
towards Israel first during the Exodus, but God's mercy flies on the wings of wrath. Have you ever thought about that? That God's mercy does not exist in some isolated fashion out in the vacuum of space. His mercy is intermixed with his wrath. How could he have saved Israel out of Egypt unless he had destroyed Pharaoh's army? How could he have delivered the land of Canaan to the Israelites without clearing out and displacing evil nations? How could God have preserved Noah apart from the context of the flood? God's salvation is always accompanied by his wrath against sin, against evil, against oppression and wickedness. Even when laws of emancipation were passed in England in the 19th century, sorry, yeah, the 19th century, and even in the United States to abolish slavery, there was a great economic cost to those who own slaves. So even God's mercy, even in a legislative sense, comes at some cost to somebody else. Mercy and wrath are intertwined together, even in our salvation, my friends. We're going to see in Romans chapter 9 in a maybe next year. We're going to see that God's mercy towards vessels, or God's, put it this way, God's wrath against evil is meant to display his mercy towards those that he saved. So Habakkuk prays, in your wrath, remember mercy. Even though judgment is coming to the church or coming to God's people, remember your mercy, God. Remember your mercy. We have to see the glorious brightness of his work in verses 3 and 4. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like sunlight. He has rays flashing from his hand and there is the hiding of his power. And we see the, the, the shine and the, the, the sparkling of his spear. We see the radiance of his glorious work if you belong to Israel, right? If you're on the receiving end of God's mercy, it is a splendor. It is a full of majestic praise in the heavens. It's a light of hope to Israel, the shining radiance of his power. But likewise, it says that pestilence followed his heel. Again, how did he free Israel from Egypt? He sent 10 plagues, which, by the way, Israel partook in as well. The locusts filled the homes of Israel as well. The frogs, likewise, the darkness, the flies, the blood in the Nile River. It, Israel suffered under those plagues as well. But ultimately, the final act of deliverance was given to Israel, and the final act of judgment in that scene was given to Egypt. So along with the rousing hope of deliverance, there is terrible wrath, terrifying wrath from God. He also notes uh, in verse 11, the battle of Joshua, which you can look at in Joshua 10 and 12. And so there's this amazing summary from the prophet here where he sweeps through the Old Testament and he remembers all the times where God was faithful to his people. The church can use a lot more of that. Remember God's goodness. Remember when God... We read it a few weeks ago in the Psalms. Pulled you out of the miry clay and set your feet upon a rock. Remember God's mighty mercies. You know, I might not be even alive or a Christian today if 
God had not saved my father, who does not come from a Christian background. He was given the gospel in his 20s after a night of drinking, much in the same way that Jimi Hendrix died. My dad woke up in the same filth that took the life of Hendrix in his 27th year. The mercy that came to my father through the evangelist who gave him the gospel has changed, for all we know, by God's grace, a generation of children with the last name Tyso. Praise God for the work that he has done. Remember his mercy. You didn't just stumble into the life that you have now or the knowledge that you have in Christ. Look back on how God arranged history to bring you to salvation. Because of the way that Habakkuk sums sums this up is the way that we can glory even when we see the terror of God. Verse 13, you went forth for the salvation of your people, your anointed, the Um, English Standard Version translate that you went forth for the salvation of your elect. If you belong to God, God has moved heaven and earth for you and the church. If you belong to God, he has worked on your behalf. He wasn't just blindly swinging an axe somewhere and missed you. He saved you because you belong to him. You are anointed, it says. It's the haven of salvation. It's the haven of safety for all mankind to belong to God. You know why? Because God does not forget his anointed. He does not forget his elect. First Timothy says that he knows them that are his. He doesn't forget who belongs to him in Christ. Maybe you need to hear that this morning. If you belong to God in Christ, you are not just a nameless individual somewhere lost in the ethos of religion. You belong to God. You belong to the elect. God's salvation cannot be separated from his wrath and his victory against the wicked. We also have to remember that God's salvation is not just the thing that happens at the end. God is continually saving us, preserving us through his discipline. We're going to talk a little bit more about his discipline in the next section. So recalling God's faithfulness to his own is the first way that God's people respond in prayer to the vision. And remember, the vision is of judgment. It's not a vision of, it's not Jeremiah 29, 11. I have great plans for you to prosper you, to provide you a future. That's not the vision here. The vision here is you will be invaded by a wicked kingdom. How do God's people respond? That's not what we signed up for, God. No, we remember his great works so that we can say, remember mercy. We see that your wrath is coming, but remember mercy. Next, we see enduring by faith. We see Habakkuk declaring a a commitment to endurance, a commitment to perseverance. Why does he run through all of these prayers? Is it just because he's trying to fill time? He's got to write a song for his next album. Why is Habakkuk writing this hymn? It's for endurance. He recalls the work of God so that he can endure dark days. Days of trial, days of discipline from the hand of God. Friends, we need to make no mistake that the church of God in the West is under judgment of God. It's under the hand of God. I don't say that to try to sound important. It's just a fact that God's church is under judgment. She is being purified. It's not because God doesn't love the church. It's because he loves us. And so when we see judgment, when we see trials come upon the church, we don't wave it away and say, oh, 
you know, we're so much better than that. And God has better for us. He may in the future, but we do not wave it away. We do not rebuke trial as some tend to do. Although we rebuke this in the name of Jesus Christ as if we can just put up a little wall and hold out God's loving discipline from our midst. We don't do that. You know what we do? We endure. When I read this, we were, um, we were deciding whether or not to preach this book. And we had suggested to us and thought it was a great idea. And so I read through it before we made a final decision. And it was verse 16 that I read that had the Lord just grip my heart and say, this is the book for my people right now. Verse 16, I heard it. I heard the plan of God. I heard what he was doing. And my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. ESV translates it, rottenness entered my bones. And in my place, I tremble. When we recognize the rebuke of the Lord, it's a trembling feeling. This idea that the Christian sort of lives on cloud nine and, it, you know, if you feel any discomfort or if you're in any place of, you know, stress upon you, then, well, that's not what God has for you. You need to get up above the clouds and, you know, live that victorious life. It's a false gospel. Habakkuk, the prophet, said, rottenness enters my bones. I am about to decay. I'm about to waste away. And that verse stops because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for these people to arise who will invade us. In other words, I can see over the horizon. I can see the evil coming. And my only option from God is to watch. They're coming. God is not going to reverse this work. And that may strike fear into the heart of God's people. I can't believe this is happening to us. I can't believe God would let us endure this trial. I can't believe he would let us have this discipline, this rebuke. And the prophet says, I just have to wait. And it was that verse that made me recognize this is what God has for his people. We belong to the church in a certain part of the world. And because God is a father, he gives attention to all of his children. And as we face whatever we're facing in the years ahead, we recognize, though it may be uncomfortable, though it may bring rot and quivering and trembling, it is from the Lord. He began recognizing this vision by saying, I see that you have raised them as a reproof. You have raised them as a rebuke. The invasion is not just the random acts of history. It's a rebuke from God who raises up and puts down nations for his own purposes. And so we may look at the season that we're in with utter despair. We see a church right now following the insanity of the institutions and has imploded on herself in many parts. The church has just abandoned her post and her call to worship. Now, how that's done in the season that we're in and, you know, the degree to which you, you know, protect against infection of COVID is, is entirely up to the individual leaders of a church. But when the church has wholesale abandoned her post as the meeting and the gathering of God, that's judgment from God. That is a sifting of the church. Make no mistake. 
And we may look at it with despair and say, everything's collapsing around us. And we may even, even get an Elijah complex and say, oh, Lord, look at us. We're the only faithful ones. We don't want to say that either. We are like children being disciplined by God. And it is for us to keep quiet sometimes and take it and receive from God what he has for us because he loves us. I want to turn very briefly to the news. Again, this past week was chock full of it. Did you see a video uh, where Justin Trudeau talks about, you know, the opportunity for the, the reset of all, you know, the global affairs? And I read, and it's in Time Magazine as well. I treated this like a conspiracy theory, much to the frustration of some of my family members, for months. It sounds like a wild conspiracy theory. Well, it's on the cover of Time Magazine and our prime minister is talking about it. So I think I have to pull my head out of the sand. Well, what's this about and how does it relate to our passage? I'll tell you. It's... It's a, it's a presentation of COVID-19 and the restrictions that they've been able to bring upon society, uh, spoken of in terms of an opportunity, which I grant that every season of life is an opportunity. However, the opportunity that the global elites are pushing for is an opportunity to collectivize global power, to bring about radical and costly visions for life. And what are these visions? They include climate change goals, Gender diversity within the, uh, the economic sphere and the educational sphere, population control, so-called poverty relief. You saw a few months ago, maybe the Green New Deal. The cost, I think, of that was estimated in the, the trillions upon trillions of dollars. How do you think a government is going to achieve these goals? What, what is the cost of these goals? By the way, how climate change relates to the season we're in right now is now that they've used this tool of regional lockdown and periodic lockdown and sort of this authoritarian view of society, they now see that as a tool that can be used to fight climate change. So when carbon levels reach a certain uh, degree in some region, they can just shut down economic development. They can just shut down human activity and say, well, it's for climate change. It's for the preservation of life. Love your neighbor. That's how this is being viewed. And so how does this relate? Well, number one, Collectivist power is always opposed by God. That's what the Tower of Babel is about. That's what Psalm 2 is chapter, a chapter is about. While the, uh, it says that the kings of the earth take counsel together and they plot against the Lord and his anointed. It says that they're destroyed. The wrath of God's terror is furious. And so I offer a, a rebuke and an invitation to our leaders to repent, to come to Christ and to look out for the people of your nation and to do what is best for them according to the word of God. I call upon our leaders, even within Smith Falls and Ontario and Canada, to repent and come to Christ and to abandon plots for collectivist power because it's not gospel. And so how, again, does this tie in? Well, these goals will require the vast seizure of private property. That's what taxation is. It's a seizure of private property. These goals cannot be achieved without the mass seizure of private property. Again, how does this relate? And so what's going to happen? You know, are they going to take our land and our homes and our investments? They may. They may because that's what it will cost to relieve uh, the financial burden of this vision. And Habakkuk, as he is going through and he's considering what it might look like to be under the hand of judgment, he says the fig tree might not blossom and there's no fruit on the vines and there's no olive in the vineyard and the fields are barren. And though there may be no cattle in the stalls, for an agrarian society, if your stalls were empty, you were broke. It was time to run. 
It was time to go find a job somewhere. We're just reading Little House on the Prairie. When the locusts destroyed the family's wheat crop, which was going to pay for the house, it was going to pay for new boots, it was going to totally financially secure the family. And then the locusts came and they destroyed the crop. And the locusts stayed for multiple years and Pa had to walk 350 miles to find a job. I mean, when you need to survive, you maybe get on and you walk 350 miles, you go somewhere, but you can't stay. You can't just sit there and say, well, this discipline is very difficult and hopefully it passes soon. You need to, for an agrarian society, these items of judgment were life-threatening. They were dramatic. They were horrendous. They were severe. And yet similar activities might be perpetrated upon God's people here in Canada. We don't know. I'm not fear-mongering. I'm saying it's possible. I'm saying that a vision that rejects God will eventually destroy God's people. When you've done all you can to attack God, what do you do? You attack the image of God, men and women. Rottenness may enter your bones when you look upon these schemes. When I look upon it, rot enters my bones. It's hard to imagine a Canada that has given itself over to this kind of agenda. It's hard to imagine the country that I grew up in, the country that for generations people have flocked to for freedom. Rottenness enters my bones. But God has not forgotten his church. He's not abandoned his church, and it's for us to endure. It's for us to remember his good works and to endure and to wait for it. To wait for it and to say God is faithful. Now, that doesn't preclude fleeing. If that's necessary, that's an option Jesus gave his disciples when they persecute in one town, flee to the next. It's a valid option, but I'm saying... When judgment comes, it's not an accident from God. I will wait. And that's why I've been talking so much about Psalm chapter 2 with Shannon and the kids lately. And I'm just going to read it again. Psalm chapter 2, verses 7 through 12. Why are we able to wait? Doesn't that sound just like irresponsible? Verses 7 in chapter 2 in the Psalms says, I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give you the nations. So who do the nations belong to? They belong to Jesus Christ. Every leader is installed by God as a steward of God's authority. As an under authority to the, to the king of kings. I will give the nations as your inheritance, your inheritance and the very ends of the earth is your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, kings, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and trembling and rejoice. Do homage to the Son that he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all those who take refuge in him. God's wrath being kindled in light of the oppression of his son and his anointed. And so we invite the kings of the earth to take refuge in God, in Jesus Christ. And so friends, we need to not just turn our heads and bury them in the sand and say, well, you know, maybe it's not really real. The status quo is gone for now. There's a new order in our time. And we have not been given to live in another time. We've been given to live now to be faithful to Christ even now. Hebrews chapter 12 reminds us that discipline for the moment seems painful rather than pleasant. Isn't that a novel concept? 
We have to be reminded that discipline is not pleasant. Maybe for some of us, it's been a long time since we were kids. My kids don't look forward to discipline, that it's not their favorite part of the day. But afterwards, it yields righteousness. And there is peace and harmony among us, and it works. And likewise, when God's hand of discipline is upon us, it is not pleasant, but it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Romans chapter 8 reminded us that all creation is groaning and awaiting the final redemption of the Lord. Friends, we are working towards a righteous outcome. We looked at this last week that all the earth will be covered and filled with the knowledge of God as water covers the sea. We don't have to worry that that's God's backup plan or maybe that won't work. That's what's happening. Even though what we see brings rot to our bones. What we see may not totally jive with what we know to be true, but that's, that's not the point. The point is to trust and remember the works of God and to build our endurance upon that. Because if he is trustworthy in the past, he'll be trustworthy in the future. He's not going to forget you or your family or the church of God. And so what do we do? We live in worship and security. That's how we live no matter what days we're in. Christians don't need to get frantic and lose their heads and go nuts. We need to worship the living God. That's why our church is open. Because no matter what's going on in the world, we respond in worship. We respond remembering the security that God has brought to us. And so Habakkuk reminds, recalls all these ways that the, the earth has let them down and their prosperity and their well-being has been removed from them. Verse 18, as the book closes, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength and he has made my feet like hinds feet and made me walk in my high places. So he has put my foot in a secure place. If you belong to the Lord, though your, well may, your, though your physical well-being may be in question, though your political security may be in question or your financial security may be in question, we will worship the Lord, our strength. Why? Because he has put our foot in solid places. You are now, if you are in Christ, you are already seated at the right hand of God in Christ Jesus. We read that in Romans chapter 8. You are already secure in eternity. Your footing is sure even now through eternity. It doesn't matter what happens. Again, does that mean retreat from the world and say, it doesn't matter, it's all going to burn? No. All of these judgments are spoken of in terms of human well-being and the physical earth. And remember, friends, that we are the inheritors. We are the heirs of the whole earth. That's what Matthew chapter 5 is about. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The earth is not God's backup plan. It's going to be the inhabitants of his new kingdom and his new city, occupied by all the redeemed for all of time. God, the Lord, is your strength, my friends. You are partakers in that exodus. When Jesus met on the Mount of Transfiguration with the two prophets, they, it, um, Luke says that they spoke about what he was about to accomplish, the exodus, which is the Greek word for exodus that he was about to accomplish. Our salvation in God is the exodus from our sin together. We have come together into a promised land as God's redeemed in the same way Israel was removed from Egypt. Remember God's works. He has put you in a firm place. Don't lose your head. Don't be swayed. Don't be frantic. Look at the world, and though your lips may quiver, remember that God, your Lord, is your strength. 
He has proved his love to us and he will not abandon us and we are totally secure. So how do we respond? Fathers, teach your family the whole counsel of God. Live your life through the scriptures to the headline, not the other way around. Understand the times that we are in, but with the lens of God's sovereignty and his control and his power in your life. Lead your family the way Habakkuk led God's people. Though my bones are rotten and my lip quivers, I will worship the Lord. So men, lead your family to do that. Individuals, if that's you, if you're not a part of a family, then that's your calling. Discipline your mind in the company of God's people to do this. This is probably implicit, but don't live as hermits. Don't duck until the battle's over and, you know, go into your basement and tweet out how bad the world is. Our endurance and our faith in God is a message of prophecy to the world. And by the way, it's a world that desperately needs it right now. Our world is so racked with fear, so racked with fear. What does our endurance do? Let's ask it the other way around. What does our retreat and cowering tell the world? Yeah, you better darn well be scared. We have no idea what's going to happen. We're as scared as you. That's not the calling of God's people. Though our, our fields may be barren and our stalls may be empty, we can say to the world, the Lord God is our strength. How about you? So your worship and your security in God is an act of evangelism. There's a scripture that asks, when people ask you about the hope that is in you, give an account. Well, who's going to be asking if we're hiding better than they are? So friends, let your endurance and let this faithfulness be a message of redemption to the world and an act of evangelism. The world needs to hear what Habakkuk is saying to Israel. Also, the most potent defense against despair in God's judgment or God's discipline, you know what the most potent defense is? It is to put your shoes on, to meet with God's people, and to recall the works of God, to take the Lord's Supper together, to remember his covenant faithfulness, to remind each other of his love for his people among the elect, to praise God for his works in hymns, and to trust in his promises. That is the most potent defense against despair. There are other defenses, but in my life in the last 10 months, that has been the most potent defense against despair. And friends, I like to consider myself a pretty stable person. I have found myself in despair. I found myself so discouraged and so darkened in these last 10 months. I really have. And you know what fixes me right up? Being here with you. I go home with a spring in my step and I'm ready for lunch. I'm ready for the week. I'm ready to face what God has for us because I'm with you. And I see that you're in the same boat and we're living this out together, friends. I love when he writes, Habakkuk writes this. He puts the period on the end. Now, I don't know if he wrote this himself, but it was of his words. It's like he, look at that last line for the choir director on my stringed instruments. He closes the envelope, he stamps it with wax, and he says, now send this to the choir master. This is not just a man screaming at God out of control. This is a man saying, great, now let's sing it. That's the whole picture. If you step back one step, this is not pure despair or pure catharsis on his part. This is now tell the God's people to sing this out when they get together next time. I don't know what's going to happen, but we can trust in God. Psalm 7, 9, this is the way my conference ended on Friday. Let the evil of the wicked come to an end. 
and you may establish your righteous, you who test the hearts, O righteous God. God is surely doing a work in our day, and let's not miss it. Let's be God's people. Let's remember his faithfulness, and let's tell others of the same. Let's pray.